Last week, we finished up our study in Nehemiah, and it was, it was a good one, wasn't it? It was 13 chapters, uh, about three months, a little bit more, uh, but a great, a great study for us. Um, and, and I think we, we covered it pretty good. And for those of y'all that have been here, been following online, I think Nehemiah has been a good study for us. We uh, learned a lot. We were, our eyes were open to a lot of things. I've heard many of you all say, uh, I didn't know that much about Nehemiah. And I wish I, there's been a lot of that, and that's good. But over the last week, I found myself going, I wish I'd emphasize this more. I wish we'd talked about this a little bit more. And so today, we're going to do very different than what we normally do. Instead of walking through a passage, I'm going to do a a summary overview of Nehemiah, five takeaways to leave you with. Here through all five takeaways from our study in Nehemiah. And and, and if you've been here through all of Nehemiah, then you've heard these. It's going to be a little bit more emphasis to you, but it's a way of kind of bringing all of of, of the high points, at least that, that have stuck with me, together for us to hold on to them. Nehemiah has been good for me. I've liked this. It's been great to study it and read it and read it and study it and put together talks for us. And and there are certainly more than five. I mean, there there are all kinds of takeaways from the book of Nehemiah. And today I'm going to talk about five. But before I get into the main five, let me just say a couple other. God writes some awesome stories. Nehemiah is an awesome story. You got a guy that's in exile in Persia. He's the cupbearer. We'd never even heard of cupbearers before we read Nehemiah. And yet God uses a cupbearer and he gets this burden and he's sad. And next thing you know, he's the governor that's rebuilding the walls. What an awesome story. God did that. God does those types of things. God does great things. Can you imagine how Nehemiah felt as he looks back and reflects on that? Can you, Nehemiah, can you imagine just Nehemiah sitting down at night drinking some coffee and going, man, God has really brought us a long way. And, you know, we need to do that too. We need to be able to sit and reflect on where we used to be. That, that, that video with Josh Powell causes me to do that. He remembers when things were very different here in our church. And we need to think about the stories that God writes and the providences that he brings together and the way things have come about. If you haven't heard, and I've said it many times, but I was on a visit to New Orleans Seminary in 2003, well before I ever moved here. There's a seminary in New Orleans that I thought I was going to go to, and a seminary in North Carolina that I thought I was going to go to, and then there's the seminary in Louisville that I thought I was going to go to, and after we did our visit of the seminary, they said we were free the rest of the night, and I was 23 years old, and we didn't know what to do, so we went to the gym to play basketball. Gosh, pal, we went to the gym to play basketball in 2003, and it just so happened to be that a guy named Josh Powell that I'd never, ever heard of or seen in my life was in there playing basketball. And I met him that night playing basketball, and he said, man, would you like to come visit Fairdale? I'm going to be starting there. And that's how that happened. I love that story. I love that God brought that about. I loved it that basketball was able to be used for that. I love that we had a free night so that we could go play basketball. If they would have been touring the library, I would have missed out on that. God writes awesome stories. Another takeaway that I have from Nehemiah before I get into the main five is just Nehemiah's inspiration for us. I hope you're thinking, I want to be like Nehemiah. I'm thinking, I want to be like Nehemiah. I want a burden and a conviction in my life to overflow into who I am and what I do. 
I want everybody that meets me to think he does what he does because he knows God and fears God and believes in God. I want my movements and my responses. I want my attitudes. I want my relationships. I want the decisions that I do and the decisions that I decide not to do to be based off of God and who he is. That's what Nehemiah was like. That's why he did what he did. That's why he wasn't so let down and discouraged and put off when there were haters, when there were negativity, when there were people opposing him. He stayed the course. Why? Because he had something deeper working in him. He wasn't able to be pushed off of his line. He stayed the course. And there were a lot of pushing. There was a lot of pushing. But he stayed focused. I want to be like that. I want to take a risk like he did. I want to dare to make a difference in the world. I want to realize that uh, God uses people. I want us to realize that. I want us to see that God is using our lives here. Nehemiah has me thinking like this and so many other things. But I'm going to sum it up today in five takeaways. If you kids have a listening page, here's the first one. Number one, the work of prayer. The work of prayer. I know that everybody knows Nehemiah as the story of rebuilding the walls But if you are a Bible student like we've been these last three months and you read Nehemiah, you know that Nehemiah did not just work, did he? He didn't. He relied on God and he prayed. He didn't just coach the team. He prayed for the team. He didn't didn't just serve the food out of the food pantry. He prayed as he served the food out of the food pantry. He didn't just go to his job and bust his butt all day. He prayed as he did that. He didn't just have relationships in the community. He prayed as he had those relationships in the community. And you cannot miss this. You are not reading the Bible correctly if you miss out on this convictional man of God, Nehemiah, and yet his praying. Man, he was a prayer. The book begins with a really big prayer in chapter 1, and it ends with a lot of prayer in chapter 13 where he says four times, Remember me, O God. Remember them, O God. Remember, O God. He was a praying person. You might say that it was the teamwork and all of that that rebuilt the walls, but you also must recognize that it was God working through those people because of the prayers that they rebuilt the walls. The work of prayer. He prayed. And throughout this short book, we see all kinds of different prayers. He prayed all kinds of prayers. He confessed his sin at times. He repented at times. He just cried out and asked God for help. God helped. He asked God to open doors. He asked God for favor at times. He prayed in all sorts of different ways. Let me show you one. Chapter 1, just the first one, verses 4 through 6. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Okay? So he was sad. He was upset. He was frustrated. He was depressed. What did he do? And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. The great leader, the great action taker, the great difference maker that Nehemiah was, was a man who prayed, was a man who believed in the work of prayer. Two verses four a back when I told you about that quickie prayer from chapter two. You remember that one? Look at chapter two verses four and five. 
This is when the king was talking to him. And he noticed that he was sad. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 4 of chapter 2. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Look at this. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favor in your sight. And it goes on. Remember me emphasizing that? That was a long time ago. The quickie prayer. It doesn't say he said something to God. It doesn't say what he said to God. It doesn't say he stepped away and said, give me a second, king. i got to seek the Lord before I answer you. No, the king asked him a question, and he was ready to answer him. But in that quick moment, somehow, he glanced to heaven. His heart cried out to God. He believed that God was moving in the situation, and he spoke to the king as he prayed to God. What a thought. Sometimes prayer is a 9 a.m. gathering where we hope you'll show up and we cry our eyes out on a Sunday morning out loud vocally asking God to bless this service and bring people here and draw people to Christ. But sometimes prayer is right there on the spot in a second. Lord, help me. Nehemiah was a praying guy. He prays in 4.9, he prays in 5.19, he prays in 6.9, he prays in 9.6, he prays in 9.8, he prays in 9.17. And, and I told you in chapter 13, he prayed a lot. We saw that just last week. Remember, remember, remember. We cannot think of the rebuilding of the walls being accomplished without the prayer of Nehemiah. Church, these days Christians are known for so many wrong things. If somebody's going to know that you're a believer in Jesus... May they know that you believe so much that you pray. You slow down enough to pray. You quiet yourself enough to pray. You stop enough to pray. May we believe in the work of prayer. The rebuilding of Jerusalem is a fascinating story. The walls and his leadership is a beautiful story. But it happened because God answered his prayers. May we believe that. There's all types of statistics out there that are very helpful. Uh, 50 per- share you this one. Share this one with you. In the United States of America, 50% of marriages end in divorce. In the United States of America, 78% of second marriages end in divorce. But I'm encouraged to tell you that in a marriage where the man and the woman pray together, Less than 1% get divorced. Over 99% of marriages where they pray out loud together end in divorce. One out of every 1,100 marriages break up when they've been praying together. There's a lot of factors that go into divorce and all that, and we're not here today to hammer on divorce. We're here today to remind ourselves God tells us to pray And there is a work of prayer. We see that through Nehemiah. That's number one. The work of prayer. Number two, the need for confrontation. I, like many of you, don't like confrontation. I don't want to pick a fight. I'd like to just avoid it and let's just pray about it and hopefully it will go away, right? That's how many of us are. And not every, I did say, I, I was about to say everybody, but I know enough of you all to know that some of y'all like a fight and y'all ready to stir it up any chance you can. But not everybody's that way. Well, whether you like it or not isn't the point here today. Nehemiah didn't seem to like it. But Nehemiah knew, number two, the need for confrontation. Turn to the last chapter, chapter 13. The need for confrontation. And now that we have social media, Nehemiah didn't have social media. And now we have all of this, you know, chat groups and group texts and all that. It's so much easier to confront people, and it's usually not healthy. And so I realize that I'm toeing the line. i got to be real careful here, and I need, 
I need a lot of just caution to speak this well. But we cannot miss that this great leader, Nehemiah, was willing to confront when it was necessary. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Look at verse 11. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? Hey, you may not want to ask that question. You may not like being a, having to do that. You may be afraid of how they're going to respond. But if the glory of God is being neglected and forsaken, shouldn't there be somebody that would say, hey, why are you neglecting God's house? Why are you doing this? And it says he confronted them. If you stay in chapter 13 and you jump over to verse 17, it's talking about how they were doing things at the temple that they should not be doing. They were doing things on the Sabbath <clears throat> that they should not be doing. Verse 17 says, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Hey, if people are doing evil in the name of Jesus, it needs to be confronted. If people are doing evil in the name of God, in the worship of God, in the house of God, it needs to be confronted. Notice that he's confronting people that are claiming the name of Jesus. This is not that he's confronting evil necessarily just in the world, although that's a different category that we can speak to at other times. But these confrontations that he's taking on are people that say they're Christian. It's people that say they're a part of the church. It's people that are supposed to be on our team, and yet they are totally disregarding God and his ways. And so there was confrontation. There had to be. The Bible teaches us this. You remember the teaching of Jesus on church discipline in Matthew chapter 18? You remember what Jesus says, if somebody sins against you, go to them? You remember when Jesus says, go and tell him his fault? Jesus teaches us this. We don't like confrontation, but at times, folks, confrontation is needed. And Nehemiah teaches us this. In midweek, we've been studying through Timothy, 1 Timothy, where Paul is telling Timothy how to lead a church. And at the men's retreat this weekend, we looked at Titus, where Paul is telling Titus how to teach teachers. And in both of those books, Paul is telling the leader, when there's false teachers in the middle of you, you must go stop them. They must be silenced. Rebuke them sharply. Speak up and do something. Tell them they cannot teach. No, you can't teach a small group. No, you can't lead a Sunday school class. No, you're not going to stand up here and preach if you're not going to be faithful to God. Somebody has to say that. Everybody that wants to preach and teach should not get to preach and teach. They must prove themselves faithful. And that confrontation is needed at times. Now, let me remind you, the Bible teaches us a whole lot about how to do that. Do you remember when Jesus said, before you notice the speck in somebody else's eye, you better notice the log that's in your own eye and go do work on yourself first? I love that teaching of Jesus. We need to remind ourselves that all the time, right? When you're real quick to get on somebody or real quick to get angry about this or this gets you worked up or something like that, you need to first go to the mirror, recognize, man, that's more than a speck I got. I'm a hypocrite myself at times. Other people's sins bother me more than my own. I'm real quick to judge them and I'm not show grace and I'm real quick to show grace to me. We need to get that reversed. 
We need to see ourselves rightly through God. And we need to get the log out of our own eye before we would ever address a speck in somebody else's. It's Jesus that teaches us that. We have to humble ourselves before God. The Bible also teaches us that whenever we do speak truth in a confrontation setting, we are to speak the truth in love. We are to make sure that we've cared for them. A couple weeks ago, we gave out towels right here at church. And the towel is a reminder from John 13 that Jesus took a towel and he washed their feet. He washed the feet of people that struggled and washed the feet of people that were wayward. He washed the feet of a crooked apostle Judas who would betray him, who had the devil in him. He washed their feet. And when you are washing somebody's feet and serving them and caring for them and prioritizing them and showing them that you value them and showing them that you're less than them, then you might be able to speak truth into their lives or speak confrontation into their lives, which Nehemiah did. He was this awesome leader. And earlier in the service, there was a need for confrontation. We read from Proverbs 9 earlier in the service, and Jake read it. And it's the passage that points out wisdom, the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. But it points out that in confrontation, which is needed, you confront a foolish person and it's not going to go well. You're going to start a fight. They're going to be upset with you. And that's the cost. We've got to be ready for it. But did you see what it said about confronting a wise person? Church, you need to hear that. It says reprove a wise person and he will love you. If your heart is right before God, And somebody comes up to you and says, look, dude, I ain't trying to start a fight. I'm not trying to upset you. I'm not not better than you. I got my own issues. But this ain't right, man. This ain't how we live for Jesus. The wise person that knows God says, thank you. Man, I've been struggling with that. It's been bothering me. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I want to live for God. I want to be like Nehemiah. And if I'm not, tell me, please. Confrontation brings that about. Don't we know this in our homes? In the most loving relationships that you have in your life, your parents to you or or you to your kids, you're always confronting the issues. Don't do that. Don't act like that. Don't talk like that. Sit down right now. We're eating dinner. Turn the TV off. Put the screen down. Right. All the things that we say. And we're constantly confronting in love to make them a better person. To work on their hearts. In the family of God, in the church, there is a need for confrontation. Albeit much wisdom to go about it the right way. But the Bible is filled with command to rebuke and be cautious and warn and correct and reprove and hold accountable. It's there. If we don't love well enough to be able to do that, well then we need another sermon on what it means to love. We need another sermon on what it means to have relationship and open up ourselves and not get offended. Why do we get offended? Boy, we'll get hot. Prideful? We're always getting offended. If anybody dares say anything negative to us, boy, we'll get hot. Y'all, that's how the world is. That's how your family members are that don't believe. Don't be like them. Take the blow. Take the offense. Take the rebuke for the name of Jesus. Be willing to have somebody tell you where you're wrong and take it like a man and say, you're right, man. Thank you. I'm trying to be a better person. I've been praying about being a better person. I've been working hard to be a better person. I've been wanting to live for Jesus. I want to be a witness. I'm trying to be godly. Well, to be godly, there needs to be some confrontation in your life. Nehemiah teaches us this. Proverbs 9 says, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Man, I want more people in my life that love it when somebody corrects them. 
And I want to have the heart that loves it when somebody corrects me. Number one, the work of prayer. Number two, the need for confrontation. Number three, the power of influence. And I spent the whole study not making this point because I didn't want to. But it's obvious, okay? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 17. The power of influence. Y'all know what influence is, right? Everybody knows what influence is. It's when you can get somebody to do something else. Your life rubs off on them, and so they start doing it. You get into running, and now you got your buddies into running, right? You, you gotten into hunting, and now you got people going hunting with you, right? That's what influence is. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So there's the big speech. That's the first time that Nehemiah tells all these depressed people, man, it's been years and years and years. Jerusalem is a dump. The glory of God is shamed. Let's go back and rebuild it. Look at verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise. A lot of people say, build. Were it not for Nehemiah, you don't have a lot of people saying, let's do it. That's influence. That's influence. There's a thing now because of the internet called influencers. I hear people say, he's an influencer. There's people that have their, that's their title, that's their job. All they do is just try to move people in this direction. Because of social media, you can do that. We gotta be careful with influence, I know that. That's why I was intentional to not really talk about it all that long. Because while influence is real, if God's not in it, then it's just for nothing, right? We understand that. Influence is real, but if God's not in it, then it's just for nothing. But as the work of prayer showed us with Nehemiah, sometimes God is in it, isn't he? Sometimes God is in it. God was in it with Nehemiah. I talked to a guy on the phone yesterday who was telling me that during COVID and all the restrictions and things being shut down, it wasn't here in Louisville or Kentucky, but when everything was shut down and all the trials with that, their church was really, really struggling and they weren't able to meet. And they didn't have the means to, to do like Zoom calls for everybody and it was just really, really, really hard on them and that, that went on for a long time. So they finally said, man, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to start meeting outside. We'll start with kids. We'll do a backyard Bible club, kind of like a VBS, kids ministry outside and it's better than nothing. Try to get some people together open up a bible start talking about jesus let's see what happens you know what happened they announced that it was for kids well the parents started coming bringing their kids and the parents started staying too you know what happened from that it grew and it grew and even now the covid restrictions have been way over and even now they're up to 40 50 people adults and kids that are there every week saying we want more of this you know how that came about Somebody in COVID, frustrated like Jesus, people were saying, man, I, I want to keep doing ministry. I want to help people know Jesus. And one couple said, we're going to start a little outdoor Bible study for kids. Now they're about to plant a church of 50 people that have been meeting since COVID. They've been meeting for almost two full years now. 
Because one couple said, we want to do something with it. Y'all, influence is real. We know that sometimes God's not in it. And we think that's just a man-made movement. And so we don't put much stock in it. But sometimes God, one person says, I'm going to start doing this. And God's all over it. And you see God working through it. So we got to be careful. But we can also recognize it. In Psalm 127, it's that, that's the psalm. It's a short psalm. That's the psalm where it says that children are a blessing from the Lord, Psalm 127. But it's also in Psalm 127 that it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So warning against influence, but you know what it also means? That God uses people to build houses. Unless the Lord builds the house. Well, how's he going to build the house? Through a, through a man, through a woman, through a mom, through a family. There's influence where God uses people. Everybody in the room right now would say that there's something that they do because of somebody else in their life. Many of you like UK or U of L because somebody in your life raised you on that. Many of you all like working in the yard because somebody raised you on that. Many of you all right now like golf because somebody raised you on that. Or you like chopping wood because somebody raised you on that. Or you like cooking because somebody raised you on that. And that's influence. If you want to know a lot about influence, ask our teenagers. They can tell you all about it. How they dress, what they wear, how they look, what they listen to. What they'll do in front of people, what they won't do in front of people is completely based off of what everybody else is doing or what everybody else will think about what they're doing. And just imagine if somebody takes a stand and says, I'm going to do what I do because I love Jesus. And imagine the impact that that might have. Yeah. Influence is a real thing. Nehemiah was by himself when he asked those guys how you find things in Jerusalem. They gave him a bad report. He was upset about it. He started praying about it for four months. Fast forward, and the walls of Jerusalem are finished. How'd that happen? Because God used Nehemiah's influence. We just sang in that song, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. I want you to think for a second. In one small direction, what might happen in your small circle of influence if you said, here's what I'm going to start doing for the glory of God and get somebody around me? What would happen in your marriage to bounce back to that statistic if in all of your goofiness tonight at bedtime you said, I don't really know how to pray, but I heard Josh this morning on the power of prayer. And we're going to pray. There aren't any bad prayers. You know that, right? Unless you like get God's name wrong or you leave God out of it. But if you grab your wife's hand tonight and you say, God, I ain't done right. But will you help us? Amen. God will hear that prayer. Ponder anew what God might do if you started doing that every day. I heard a guy say this week, I heard a guy say this week, look, I'm not a marriage counselor, but if you take your wife out for coffee and then you take her to Hobby Lobby and tell her she can buy all the Christmas decorations she wants, your marriage is going to get better. <laughs> That's influence, isn't it? 
That's influence. Imagine if you surrendered the step, your heart completely to God, and said, God, use me. Here's a step. What might God do in little old South Louisville if we said, I don't want a big influence. Don't think my pride could handle it. I don't want a big stage. Don't think my pride could handle it. I don't want to be an influencer for sure. Don't need that many followers. What about my kid or grandkids? What about my neighbor? How might God use First Baptist Fairdale if you and I said we're going to do this for Jesus? Number one, the work of prayer. Number two, the need for confrontation. Number three, the power of influence. Number four, the strength of teamwork. Turn with me to chapter three. This is one of my favorite things that came out of our study of Nehemiah, the phrase next to him. Do you remember that? The strength of teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. Y'all, there is strength in numbers. A group of people can do so much more than one person can do. All day, every day, these days, you've got people burning out, done it too long, don't have anything left in the tank, just too hard, too hard on them, and they've been carrying the burden by themselves for too long, and so they're ready to quit, and we see it everywhere. But imagine if you spread the love out, got some people around you, you carried half the load or a quarter of the load or one hundredth of the load, and together y'all were doing all of it, and there were high fives and celebrations, and man, I appreciate you. You're helping me so much. Man, I couldn't do what i do if you didn't do what you did, and this whole idea of teamwork was going on. I remember hearing that Steve Nash used to give out, for the Phoenix Suns in the M- NBA, used to set a goal to give out 500 high fives a game. Y'all ever heard that stat before? It's amazing. He had a goal every game to give out 500 high fives. Good good job, good job, good job, good job. Keep it going, man. Good job, good job, good job. Imagine the difference of that as opposed to a teammate that's always like, dude, you don't ever pass the ball, right? Imagine the difference. Teamwork is so important. In Nehemiah, we see, look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his created it as far as, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Look at this, verse 2. So you're thinking, how'd they do it? Look at verse 2. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. You know what happens through the rest of that chapter? Next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him, next to them. The walls were built because God used Nehemiah, but Nehemiah did not build every wall. He didn't put up every brick. He didn't put up every board. He didn't put up the mortar. He he, he hardly did anything. He was the leader with the vision, but the people did it. It was a team thing. And folks, listen, I know it's a hot topic these days, and I know, I know, I know, that there's so many people that have been hurt by the church. I know that. I'm so sensitive to that. I know there's a ton of people in, in, in the world right now and around us, and especially here in South Louisville, who have been put off by the church because there's been ungodliness in the church. I know that. But you need the church. You need the body of Christ around you. If you're concerned about living for Jesus, if you're concerned that sin's going to eat you alive, if you're concerned that you're going to lose your soul to the devil, if you're concerned that you're going to end up in hell, you need the church. Not to save your soul, that's Jesus. But to keep you close to Jesus, you need the church. You cannot do it alone. We need the church. We need the people of God. Listen to this. When you think that you can do alone in the faith without the church... That's partly right. There are some things that you have to do on your own. I get that. 
Read your Bible, seek the Lord, balance your time. I understand that. And those things have some value. But we are also inevitably missing out on the key pieces of the faith that God says that we need. He just does. And it's not your prerogative to be able to say, well, God says I need these things, but I know better. I don't need these things. I don't need church to be able to be a Christian. I can stay over here by myself and be a Christian. I'm just going to do it the way I want to on my own. Y'all, that's that's partly okay, but it's partly horrible. And we need to hear the strength of teamwork. What you are getting alone is not able to provide for you what being united with others is able to produce in you. That's not my opinion. That's not my personal perspective because I'm one of the pastors of the church. That is the way of God. He has always emphasized that you need godly people in your life. Some of y'all have no concept for my second point, the need for confrontation, because you don't have any real godly relationships in your life. You can't even fathom a healthy confrontation because you don't have a relationship with anybody that's deep here. All you know is that would be getting up in my business and somebody's going to react mad. We're going to have a fight and they'll never come back again. Y'all, that's not church. I don't know what that is. It's not church. We need teamwork. If the Bible says we need confrontation in our lives, well, the only context for that to work well would be relationships that we so value that we have locked arms with that we welcome that. Deep family friendship with the lordship of Jesus Christ over the top of it so that we are in this together. Nehemiah teaches us this, the strength of teamwork. God says do not neglect meeting together. He says that. God emphasizes the one another's. You need to know, regardless of how you live and how much of an influencer you think you are, you need to know and believe it deeply that your life and your faith will help somebody else. You need to believe that. And I know it's the cool thing these days to say, no, not me. I know that, you know, humble modesty out there or a false humility said, no, not me. My life doesn't count. They're not going to miss me. That's baloney. That is baloney. Your life and faith will help somebody else. For certain, the Bible teaches us this. Some of the most impactful people in my life have been depressed, ready to die, 85-year-olds. Been the most of them, and we'll just talk. People in my life over the last several years. Because I'll go to their house, and I'll sit with them, and we'll just talk. It's doing something to me as I get in that position. They feel like they're not contributing anything into the world. They can't even come to church anymore and all of that. And I'm sitting here soaking it up like never before, learning from everything they're saying and feeling. Not to mention just how cool it is to have a youth pastor and a youth retreat and all of that. Your life matters. For the name of Jesus, your life matters. And Nehemiah teaches us this. Nehemiah is the one that gets all the attention. We don't even know the names. I couldn't pronounce the names of everybody else. But it was the teamwork of all of those people that built the walls. And somewhere along the line, Nehemiah, I'm sure, went around and said, Thank you, man. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you, man. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you, man. We couldn't have done it. At some time, remember they had a dedication of the wall where everybody showed up. And they said, Hey, look around at all these people. The walls would not be here were it not for you. And First Baptist Church of Fairdale is not going to be what it is and all the goodness that it's bringing to the world if it's not for us. And every person matters. There is strength in teamwork. In ways that you can see and in ways that you cannot see. So in regards to church, 
You need to find you a good team. You need to find you some people that you want to be a part of. You need to trust your teammates. You need to be a good teammate. You need to look around and say, man, where's a place where I can get it and fit in? You need to open up yourself to people. You need to believe in teamwork. Nehemiah teaches us this. Number one, there's the work of prayer. Number two, the need for confrontation. Number three, the power of influence. Number four, the strength of teamwork. And lastly, my last takeaway from Nehemiah is the salvation of Jesus. I said last week, and I'll say it again, there's a reason why people reduce Nehemiah's study to leadership. Because it didn't end well. If you weren't here last week, I ask you, please, go back and listen to the final sermon from Nehemiah. It didn't end well. Nehemiah left just for a little bit to go back to to Persia to report into King Artaxerxes. And when he comes back, the people already turned their back on God, already back sinning, already back doing evil. All those confrontation passages that we read were from chapter 13. That's what happened. The book of Nehemiah doesn't end happily ever after. They all moved back into Jerusalem. They were the people of God. They never sinned again. It was great. No, it doesn't end that way. It ends that way like the end of the Old Testament ends saying, good leadership isn't the answer. Good leadership is important. We vote this Tuesday. Good leadership is important. But we need more than good leaders. You and your home needs a savior you need a savior you need somebody outside of this world that's got the answer to this world we have an appreciation for leadership we want to raise up and be good leaders but we are not the savior of the world we cannot fix this world's problems we can't fix each other's hearts that's for sure we need a savior Nehemiah was unable to change their hearts. He influenced them well, but he could not change their hearts. And so when Nehemiah's influence was gone, their obedience to God was gone. And you've seen that before, haven't you? When Nehemiah's influence was gone, their obedience to God was gone. And we've seen that. So what do you need? Not leadership. You need a savior. Only God can do that. Only God can do precisely what a Savior does. Where the God of the universe, our maker, comes into the earth and becomes man, experiences everything that we experience, but he never sins. So that in his sinlessness, he could go to the cross in our place. And on the cross, he could be judged the way we should be judged, but on our behalf. So the sinless one takes our sins and rightly takes the punishment from God. The book of Nehemiah set up and the walls, because they were doing well and they did some good things and Jerusalem was set up and the walls were rebuilt, but they still didn't have salvation. They still didn't have new hearts, so God sent his son. Folks, if you've got good parents, praise the Lord for it, but you need a savior. Folks, if you've got bad parents or absent parents, we grieve that with you, but you still need a Savior. Folks, if you've got great friends around you and all sorts of positive support, praise the Lord for that, but you still need a Savior. Folks, if you don't have a single friend and you're often so lonely and wondering, you need a Savior. And God is the answer to your life, whatever it is. He's big enough. And he's good enough. He's the answer to your life. Nehemiah was a great study. 
but it ends by reminding us we need Jesus. If you will turn from your sins and trust in Christ, he will change your life. He will change you on the inside. He will make you his. I love the study, and I hope you did too. If you didn't listen to it, you can go back and listen. But this morning, I remind you of these five takeaways. The work of prayer, the need for confrontation, the power of influence, the strength of teamwork, and lastly, the salvation of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for how good Bible study has been for our church. We praise you this morning because the book of Nehemiah has fed our souls week after week. It has fueled and informed our faith. God, we want to be praying people. We want to be willing to confront when it's needed, to help people out of their sin. We want to be used by you in whatever opportunity of influence there is. We want to be all but mates to the church. We want to be a part of the teamwork around here. All because of Jesus who gets all the glory. We want to know that he's our savior. We want to put all of our faith and trust in him. We want to repent of our sins because our sins killed him. We want to be bothered by sin because sin killed him. We want to live for you. God, help us to do that. God, help us to be people that study your word and draw a conclusion from it that makes us better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.